0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, who doesn't love cool in the gang? Go to a wedding. Everybody loves cool in the gang. I mean, we're talking about some of the greatest party songs of all time. Get Down On It, Celebration, Ladies' Night. But we're also talking about a lot more than dance floor fillers. After all, the first version of Cool in the Gang wasn't even called Cool in the Gang. They were called the Jazzy Acts. My guest Cool, Robert Bell, started the group with his brother Ronald and some of their friends from high school. And they were playing jazz, but not just jazz. They did everything else. They backed everyone who came through town. They played instrumental covers of Motown records. They played James Brown songs. And they realized that if they were going to do all of these things, well, they probably shouldn't be called the Jazzy acts. They didn't really have a singer, a front man, but Robert had the best nickname, so they put that up front. Cool in the Gang. And by the time they started recording in 1968... Cool and the Gang were one of the baddest bands in the country. On those early albums, Cool and the Gang were genre benders. They were still almost all instrumental. But they were a little too funky to be soul jazz, a little too jazzy to be funk. They didn't have the hooks to make radio hits, but they were too danceable for jazz clubs. The music, though? The music was heavy. By the time 1973 rolled around, they'd added vocals, gotten funkier, and started making hits. Hollywood swinging, funky stuff, and this one, which you've probably heard... It wasn't their first reinvention. As funk gave way to disco, Kool and the Gang made some of the biggest hits, not just of their careers, but of all time. The ones you've danced to at weddings, celebration and cherish and get down on it. The ones that play between innings at baseball games and over the PA at the grocery store. The ones grandmas and grandchildren and everyone in between will be listening to for decades to come. There has now been more than half a century of Cool in the Gang and they're still at it. On July 14th they released their newest record, People Just Wanna Have Fun. Before we get into my interview with Robert Bell, Cool himself, let's take a listen to a song from the new album. It's called Let's Party. Robert Coolbell, I'm so happy to have you on the program. Uh, welcome to Bullseye. Well, thanks for having me. So I read that you gave yourself the nickname. Is that true?
2: Yes, that's kind of true, yeah.
1: You're not supposed to be allowed to give yourself nicknames, especially cool ones like Cool.
2: <laughs> well, it was uh, a situation there. Uh, I was born in Youngstown, Ohio. I left Youngstown, uh, my family and I, in uh, 1960, to uh, Jersey City. And um, in the neighborhood, there was uh, guys who had different sort of street names and whatever. And I called myself trying to fit in. So it was this guy who called himself Cool. He spelled it with a C. And I said, "Well, I like that name." I'm going to take that on as a nickname. I'm going to spell mine with a K.
1: How old were you when you moved to Jersey City? Um,
2: Well, I went to Jersey City when I was uh, 10 years old, but this was around 64 when the band started. I was around 14 years old.
1: That feels like not just a big move geographically, but a tough move at that time in your life, right? Like when you're an adolescent, you're already trying to figure out who you are in the world, and to move across the country at that same time seems rough.
2: Yeah, it was uh, kind of a rough time. Uh, My family was having some problems in terms of uh, my mother. My father was a top-five featherweight, and uh, he was never home like I ended up being on the road myself. And uh, so my mother... My mother, uh, aunt came to Youngstown, and she saw how we were living. That was her uh, sister. She said, uh, you need, I need to get you out of here. And everything that we owned was in the back of his station wagon with her husband. That's how we ended up in Jersey. And I, I guess you call that destiny, because had I never left Youngstown, had I never went to Jersey, it would never have been a cool in the game.
1: Did you watch your father fight when he was a fighter?
2: I saw him maybe once or twice. I was so young, eight, nine years old. But um, um, th- there are some uh, film of what he fought. Uh, I found out later, only about uh, a year ago, he had 52 fights. You know? So uh, I'm going to try to get some of those fights that he uh, did because I, I didn't get a chance to see that, you yeah. know? Because uh, he wasn't around.
1: Yeah, I feel like being able to tell your friend, my my dad's a professional boxer, is exciting, but it's also lonely to miss him when he's off in Cuba fighting or whatever. And yes. it's also s- scary to think that your dad gets hit in the head for a living.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a rough gig. <laughs> he wanted me uh, to... Uh, a box, uh in, in in the you call it like the 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 mini league up in Elmira, New York, at the neighborhood house, and I boxed one time. And This guy was like twice my size, and uh, I said, "No, this is not for me."
1: <laughs> I had a friend. I had a friend in high school who was an amateur boxer, and he told me one time. I was like, "How can you do that?" Like, I understand being able to punch somebody, but I don't understand being able to get punched. And he's like, well, it only hurts the first time. And I was like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> that doesn't seem really. right to me. <laughs> Seems like it would hurt yeah. the whole time.
2: <laughs> but I think with my father, um, yeah, he uh, boxed in Cuba a lot before the, uh, the sanctions. And people like like... Uh, Miles Davis and, and dizzy Gillespie and uh, a lot of different jazz musicians was playing down in uh, in Havana and uh, in Cuba. So when I was born, my father told my mother because uh, my father's name was Robert Bell, they called him Bobby Bell, and uh, they were going to. Uh, he said, "Yeah, yeah, he could be Bobby Junior or Bobby Bell Junior, but I got another name for him." And uh, so she said, what? I want to call him Dodo El Elikico, a Cuban name. And now Dodo Monteroso was a keyboard player and a bass player. My father didn't know what I was going to be. So I never liked the name uh, when I was growing up in Youngstown because people would not say the full name. They would stop at Dodo. I said, "Why in the hell did my father name me Dodo? But it was Dodo El Elikico. I am trying to figure that, out. And he didn't know I was going to become a bass player.
1: You didn't know you were going to become a bass player, right? It's not like you were taking piano lessons.
2: No, no, no. Actually, uh, I was told that my grandfather was a mechanic. He used to have me under the car with him when I was like two years old. When I was eight, I built my own motorbike from a lawnmower motor. I took a lawnmower motor and put it on a bicycle frame and ride around Youngstown you know, And I used to slow it down by choking the carburetor and we got close to the corner. Now, somebody someone came right in front of me, I didn't have no brakes like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know that I was going to become, you know, into uh, the, the music business. We started off, my brother and I, we used to take these empty paint cans and uh, depending on how much paint is left in the can was the tone of the can. And we used to sit on this place, it was called the uh, Immaculate, it was the uh, Catholic High School. And it was uh, like uh, over a little hill where went to the valley. We just sit down there and beat them paint cans, you know. And then finally we made, moved to Ohio, from Ohio rather, I should say, to uh, Jersey. Uh, ended up, uh, my mother bought me some bongos and brought my brother uh, a kunga. And uh, that's how we started. Then he went on to uh, playing saxophone and I went on playing the bass.
1: When did the two of you make a band?
2: That was in 1964.
1: So you're 14 years old. This is like buddies of yours from school.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first name that we call ourselves was the Axe. of course, because of you know, uh, you know, like uh, D.T. Dennis Thomas uh, I was into oh. Cannibal Adley, My brother John Coltrane. I listened to Ron Carter. George's and to Philly Joe Jones, and et cetera, et cetera. So we call ourselves the Jazziacs.
1: When you were thinking of yourself as a jazz band, were you playing shows in jazz clubs locally?
2: No, more more R&B clubs. Uh, You know, we played a little jazz at the club. But at the club, we would do a little jazz, a little Motown. We played a lot of James Brown, you know. Cold sweat. There was a the time, yeah.
1: What were the acts you were backing on the Soul Town Review? The acts? Yeah. What was going on? What was the What was the review?
2: Local talent. There was trying to be Temptations or Smokey Robinson or some young ladies are trying to be like the Supremes, and of course, guy uh, sound like James Brown. Those were the acts. No, no stars at that time.
1: So you kind of had to be ready for anything. When you're up on stage the whole show and you got six local yahoos running through the stage, some good, some less, you got to be ready to to make the show work.
2: Yeah, yeah. We got to know the song. The, 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 the thing about that, we had to learn these songs.
1: And that's uh, uh, Jameson. Uh, the, James uh, Jamerson, the the bassist from oh, yeah, got so many see. of the Motown records.
2: Yeah, uh, right, right, right. So uh, I listened to him because I had to listen to what the bass lines would be for the songs that we were playing.
1: Did you think when you were playing back up on the Soul Town Review that you were going to grow up and be a studio band or be a band that toured behind, um, you know, Otis Redding or whatever?
2: Well, we didn't know really what we were going to be <laughs> in terms of uh, backing up this uh, local talent. We know that was something that that we were doing, that we liked what we were doing and learning okay. from that music. But uh, also in the club, we would play behind them, and then we would do our thing, and our thing was the Kool Gang thing. Taking um, like since I lost my baby, somebody singing, we do an instrumental version or uh, some of the other stuff, which was on our first album that came out. We did an uh, instrumental version of Since I Lost My Baby. And so we were growing. Uh, and then when we left uh, Soul Town Review, we uh, were cooling the flames. And uh, we played a lot of James Brown during that time. And uh, some, uh, some other artists were even uh, sliding the family stones at the time. So we were cooling the flames. And then when we did our first album, Mr. Gene Red. We became cool in the gang. We had songs like uh, Sea of Tranquility, uh, Chocolate Buck- Butter Milk, excuse me, uh, Raw Hamburgers. All that was uh Soul. That was all uh, our music. And that took us from, and for, Cool in the Gang, our very first record, it was top 40. Uh, and that was all instrumental. People thought it was a Spanish band. We was all happy just getting out of high school. Yeah, you hear my record? Yeah. You know, so, you know, so that led us to being cool in the gang, not backing up any groups anymore. We had established our own sound.
1: Let's hear some music from that Cool in the Gang self titled debut album. How about a little bit of Give It Up? great record great album were any of you singing in your shows not during that time
2: and you know what I, I think that's uh why a lot of the hip-hop artists uh were sampling our music because there was no singer in the way it was just the groove
1: even more with robert cool bell to come where do those hits come from Ladies' Night, Summer Madness. Bell tells us when we get back. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, Max Fun listeners, this is Cameron Esposito. I'm a stand-up comic, actor, writer, best-selling author, and podcaster. I got a great show called Query where I interview LGBTQ plus luminaries across, oh, a bunch of fields. People in entertainment, astronauts, musicians, rock stars... I am bringing the show to Maximum Fun. You can listen right now, and I am so happy
0: to be on this network. We have new episodes out every Monday. You can listen at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Robert Bell. He's a founding member of Cool and the Gang. They're behind some of the biggest tracks of all time. Songs like Celebration, Hollywood Swingin', and Get Down On It. I mean, I, I could keep going for quite some time, or, or we could get back into my interview with Robert Bell. So uh, let's do that. How'd you figure out how to put on a show? Because if you don't have a singer up on stage, it's extra hard. You know, there's no focus points. So... What did you do to keep that crowd with you?
2: Well, um, we had to hit um, a cool in the gang. And uh, we got our first cool in the gang gig at the Apollo Theater in New York. And in New York, there was this group called uh, uh, Jimmy Vista and the Mighty Mac. Magnific- Skip Sunday and the Mighty Magnificent and they had the band and they had four singers and they came out they were swinging the horn and dancing and doing all that they ran us back to Jersey City. <laughs> said, now in order to compete we got to come together to compete with that. We didn't start singing at that time but we started putting the show together and we started doing routines with the songs that we were playing. Now we covered a couple of songs, like Since I Lost My Baby and other tracks, but we were, doing, uh, we were doing all the routines of the R&B groups at that time, but we weren't singing at that time. But we moved on to our own style of singing. Well, we did uh, Funky Man and we did Funky Granny and we started uh, developing a kool gang sound. And then we uh, we recorded uh, Hollywood Swingin', Jungle Boogie, and Funky Style. It was our style of singing. Hollywood Swingin' was top 10, I believe, on the R&B. No, no, on the R&B, it was number one, but top uh, pop chart. Jungle Boogie went up in top five. It was uh, our style.
1: Were you guys worried about it being... Corny to put on an R and B show when you were jazz musicians, or boring to have solos and long grooves when you were trying to put on an R and B review.
2: Well, we were to some degree because of uh, you know um, playing uh, back in Jersey City and being influenced by you know the various jazz artists that I mentioned, you know Fedia Hubbard, or Herbie Hancock, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we also knew that. If we wanted to be in show business, we had to create. We could just stand up and play like a jazz musician. We had to move on.
1: Let's hear some music from your, both your second and third Colin the Gang records. Bold Gambit, by the way, are live albums. You're like, well, we we put out the one album. Here comes back-to-back live records. Uh, but they're both really fantastic records. And Live at the PJs is, is one of my all-time faves. So let's hear N.T. from that record, which is, N.T. stands for No Titles. <laughs> no titles.
2: That's, that's what we call it, we didn't know what to call it. So, so let's call it No Title.
1: Listening to that record like, there's those two kind of opening horn phrases, and the second one the but that that one comes in like just a half a moment late, and it is the funkiest, like it is not square. it just comes in, just holds you for a second but not and it <laughs> it jams so hard
2: <laughs> Well, well, you know n t uh was a uh, um was sampled by a lot of uh, hip-hop artists. Most of them I sampled their drums. They took the drum beat and created you know their songs, you know, NT.
1: Got those big, open sounds. I mean that's what when you're making a hip-hop record, you're, you're looking for those sounds that you can, that you can use as building blocks.
2: right, right, yeah, NT was one of them, yeah:
1: Well, let's talk for a second about funky granny because you brought it up. This is a record from uh, your album, Music and the Message, 1972. And it's the last song on the album, if I remember right. It is the goofiest song, but it also jams pretty hard. hmm And I feel like by the time this record comes out, fourth album, second studio record, you guys must have been pretty comfortable with yourselves to put out a record with a silly voice on it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like you had to kind of know who you were to get to that.
2: Yeah, we kind of did silly things. I mean, you know, Funky Granny came after Funky Man. We did Funky Man first. Watch out, here comes the Funky Man. We're going to funk the whole world up. Radio wasn't playing because they thought we said the other words. (laughs) So, Funky Man, then came Funky Granny.
1: Well, let's hear a little bit of it. Hey, hey, yo,
0: fellas, how y'all doing? Hey. Hey, What's your name, old lady? My name is Funky Granny. Funky Granny? That's right, son, what's wrong with you?
1: (laughs) Whose granny voice is that? That's
2: my brother, uh, you know, uh, Ronald Bell Kalisha. He uh, passed about almost two years ago. But yeah, that's, that's how we have fun. You know, Funky Man. He's also the voice on Funky Man, as uh, also with, uh, Funky Granny.
1: How did you guys get comfortable, if not quite singing, then at the very least putting vocals on record?
2: Well, those are gang style vo- vocals for us. You know, we come up with an idea and we just throw it on there. Yeah, because we weren't doing any um, sort of lead singing. It's more like it was group singing, You're like Funky Man or Funky Granny, uh, those songs. Uh, and at that point, we still didn't do a lot of singing. It was was, uh, again, uh, Hollywood swinging, uh, Ricky West, uh, our keyboard player at that time. And then uh, Jungle Boogie was more of Chance. But, you know, it's one of our most sample records, too. And then Funky Stuff was just straight up can't get enough of that Funky Stuff. Group singing. We didn't have any lead singing, as you know, until later
1: on. That record with Funky Stuff and Hollywood Swinging and so forth, Wild and Peaceful, really changed your career. Not that your previous records hadn't been successful, they were. But it was the one that had capital H hits on it. I mean, those were big hits. How did that change your life?
2: Well, it definitely uh, changed our our direction a little bit. What happened with uh, those three uh, records and that album? The record company came to us and they said, listen, you know, you guys are having territorial hits. You know, they know you're in Philadelphia. Uh, Connecticut, you know, uh, maybe Virginia, Jersey, and Philly. He said, but um, there's this record out that's huge. It's called Soul Macusta by Amongo DiBango or DiBongo. There's this producer that produced that record. And he said, i like for you guys to meet with this producer, and maybe he can come up with a big hit for you. So we met with him once. And we said, uh, no, we're not really feeling him. So we went into a studio in New York called Bag East, down in the Soho uh, district. And we went in there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we jammed. By midnight, we had created Funky Stuff, Jungle Boogie, and Hollywood Swinging. No more problems from the record company after that.
1: <laughs> He's talking about... Huge records. <laughs> did you know that you had made huge records when you cut them?
2: We felt good about it because some of the songs were kind of like what we did. You know, if you're looking at uh, 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 funky stuff, the bass drums, the grooves were sort of similar. They were, it was not as busy as like, like Funky Granny or some of the other songs. But uh, And then Hollywood Swinging was the thing about everybody. Well, most people, I'll put it that way, like to go to Hollywood. So, did we? So, we said, well, let's write a song about it. And I remember our first time in Hollywood. We drove across country from New Jersey all the way out to LA. Saw the big Hollywood signs. Oh, wow. And we created that song, Hollywood Swinging. Know that that song was going to become such a large hit as well, Hollywood fan.
1: Music was changing really fast around you. I mean, even just in the world of funk, things were very different in 1972 and 1973 than they had been in 1969 and 1970. Right. I mean, you know, James Brown was coming to the end of his run as the king, like, he had created funk or he and the JBs had created funk and that was kind of slowing down. And, you know, the parliament and Funkadelic and the Ohio players and you guys were all finding lanes there in that world. But, you know, you guys have constantly been trying to figure out how to articulate who you were in the world because you have always been a jazz band, and a funk band, and a pop band all at once. Yeah.
2: um, The next album uh, after that was Light of Worlds. And uh, Summer Madness came from that. Spike Mickens, uh, one of the original members, had a song called You Don't Have to Change. And the vamp on You Don't Have to Change, My brother listened to that one night, and he was in the studio. He said, you know what? That's another song. He had just got his uh, art synthesizer. He said, I'm gonna do something with that. And the next day, we came in the studio. He took a solo over the van. And Spike, who, uh, you don't have to change, we asked him, how you like that? He said, I like it. What do you want to call it, Spike? I don't know, let's call it Summer Madness. And that's how it happened.
1: Let's hear a little of Summer Madness. (laughs) That, of course, has been a hundred hip-hop records, but probably most notably DJ Jazzy Jeff and The Fresh Prince.
2: Oh, yeah. He was always at the bank with that.
1: I love your bass sound on Summer Madness, that that big kind of open sound. It's gorgeous.
2: Yeah, thank you. That was, uh, I believe that was my precision. In the early days, I played uh, Fender Jazz. I have a small hand. I was comfortable with that. But some of the tracks I played, Precision was a little bit more work. <laughs> the Precision-based, yeah. But I believe that was uh, Precision-based.
1: Now, when dance music shifted from funk to disco, Coolin and the Gang got a little bit lost. You know, I was watching a TV documentary from the mid-'80s, and you and some of the other guys in the band who had been in the band this whole time. I mean, not just your brother, but you know, the core of the band was you and your friends from when you were 13.
2: Yeah. George Brown, Dennis Thomas, Charles Smith.
1: Yeah. So all of you were talking a little bit about not just your records, not selling as well as they had, but also like not knowing how you fit in to pop music then. Did you wonder when your two disco-ish records didn't really hit if that was that?
2: Well, we did an album called uh, Everybody's Dancing. And uh, we cut that down in Philly. And um, we uh, had uh, an orchestra sound on there more like the club, the disco, we was trying to
1: fit in. More female vocals. Open Sesame, which is, that's a good record that's on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, came from those years.
2: Yeah, but that's all, that I was leading up to Open Sesame. So my brother said, well, I got this track, and uh, I'll put it uh, on the floor, one on the floor, a disco beat. But he said, um, I want to put more of a, jazz horn line on top to uh, the the disco beat and that's when he came up with um, Open Sesame and uh, if you listen to Open Sesame and listen to the horns if you take and put a swing beat to that (tongue) you got jazz but we put it straight on the floor Not knowing that um, there was this movie that was going to come out called uh, Saturday Night Fever, and uh, I think it was uh, Delight Records and Sony Records, said, "Uh, ah, there's a part in this movie that we can probably use Open Sesame. Funny thing about it, the record company said? Well, we ain't gonna get a lot of money for it, but we got the publishing and the writing. We didn't know that thing gonna turn around and sell over seventy million records. And it wasn't until Michael Jackson came out with Thriller that uh, sold more records than uh, than Saturday Night Fever. But that was a blessing within it itself. But then, at the same time, still disco was having, disco was having a hard time. Uh, they were like burning disco records in stadium in Chicago, and it was this anti disco uh, uh, movement going on.
1: And you guys hadn't re- like obviously having a track on one of the biggest selling records of all time <laughs> is good for your bank accounts if you got the publishing on the song. But you know your disco records weren't selling especially well. You were sort of an awkward fit into that disco world because. As you said, disco songs needed that four on the floor beat because the dJs were mixing continuously, like that was like the the great innovation of disco was a dJ could make it seem like one song lasted forever because they could mix continuously because the songs all had that four on the floor beat to the, to the same beat, yeah. you know nobody ever had to leave the dance floor, and you guys could do your version of that, but it was an awkward fit. And then by the time people were burning the records and turning against it, you know, a lot of people who had tried to do it, that was just the end for them. There's only a few that made it through, you know. So. Before you started hitting again. Did you think, uh oh, or did you think, well, we we got a next thing to do. This isn't going to be a problem.
2: Well, we got a little uh oh, (laughs) because some of the people in the neighborhood said, "Uh, you guys, are you guys still together? Uh, Do you still play?" I said, "Yes, we are still together. We still play." We were out on the tour with the Jackson Five, when Michael Jackson was when he was with the Jackson Five, and a guy by the name of Dick Griffey, who had solo records, uh, he came to us. He said, "You guys are." doing great on the tour we said okay he said but uh, i think you need a lead singer and we said a lead singer he said yeah i think you guys need to get a lead
1: singer and this was a man who knew what he was talking about i mean you mentioned he founded solar records the the sound of los angeles like the yeah. acts on that label I guess, what, what, the Whispers were on that, weren't Whisper, they? And the Midnight Chalamar, Star, Shalimar. Those were, those were some of the acts that figured out how to make dance music and sweet soul music that lasted into the 80s.
2: Yeah, so we thought about it. And so we said, well, you know, the Commodores have Lionel Richie. Earthwind and Fire has um, Maurice White and Philip Bailey. Uh, maybe it's time to make that change. And uh, some of our music, uh, you can actually sing on top of it, you know, because it was instrumental. There was a room in there, you know. So we we were recording at the House of Music in, uh, in New Jersey, and uh, Yamir D'Adalo was there, and he was producing his album. And yeah, Frankie Valley was coming through there, Meatloaf, Loaf, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, the owner of the studio said, well, I know this guy. He's with a group called the Filet of Soul. He said, but uh, he might be an interesting guy for you guys. So, of course, you know, it was JT Taylor. JT came over, and my brother uh, played some chord progressions and had him sing through it, you know, a little jazz, a little funk. <laughs> and then he said, you know what? You sound like a young Nat King Cole. He said, oh. <laughs> Anyway, we, um, we didn't audition we didn't
1: audition anybody else. He thought he was auditioning to be a backup singer, by the way.
2: Yeah. Now, my wife and I was hanging out in New York, Studio 54, in Regimes. And we noticed that every weekend they had a ladies' night. I said, hmm, that's interesting. I went back to the guys. I said, I got a good idea for one of the first songs that we're going to do with JT he said, what? I said, ladies and I. So my brother said, wow, we got one of those all over the world. And then George Brown uh, was working on the music side of that. And uh, the the track came from George in the city, who's trying to make our, I guess you can call it, comeback. He's walking from the office down to get something to eat. And he knows people walking in New York. And he's watching the footsteps. Dun 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 dun, some don't dun, 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 dun. People walking. A part of the track. So he had the track, my brother had the hook, and I had the name. Oh yes, it's ladies night, and the feelings right. Oh yes, it's lady's night. Oh what a night. Oh what a night. Oh yes, it's lady's night. Ladies night became right. a huge hit for us. Frankie Crocker in New York broke that record, and the rest was history. It was Ladies Night. That's our first record.
1: Do you think you would have made the turn and brought in a singer if you hadn't had that uh-oh moment? Do you think you could have done it?
2: Well, again, you know, we felt we were doing pretty good at what we were doing. You know, we had just came off of 70 million records from... Uh, uh, with the Saturday Night
1: Fever, but you'd been a decade of what you were. You'd been a decade without a lead singer.
2: Yeah, right, right, right. But we felt it was time to, you know, to to make that change.
1: And it turned out that that first record, Ladies Night. I mean, that was again. I mean, it was another gigantic career transformation for you.
2: Right, right, right. Now, <clears throat> Ladies Night. We're out in L.A. We won two American Music Awards for Ladies Night, and the vamp of Ladies Night. My brother came up with another idea. He was like, "This is your night tonight. Come on, let's all celebrate!" Now he said, "I got another song." We said, "What celebration?" And he played this track. It had that kind of down-home feeling to it down there somewhere in Birmingham, Alabama, and Grandma and Grandpa sitting there on the porch of the rocking chair. hey, boy. <laughs> that track just felt right. And then we stuck in there at Yahoo and got that, that Midwestern vibe to it. And Now, the song was not, not a great written song. It was the right type of song for the right time. for us because there was other celebrations. Madonna had a celebration, and... Uh, other groups were doing celebration, but we didn't know that this celebration was going to be so huge.
1: I interviewed Charlie Wilson famously of the Gap Band, of course. And he has this vibrant career now. But they came out sort of parallel to you. They're another band that, you know, that was a funk band all the way through the 70s and managed to make it through the disco era and have huge hits in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And he lost himself during that time. He ended up living on the street, for real. You know, he told me, If I wanted to make music, I went into the Goodwill and played the piano. And that wasn't uncommon in that time because things were so bananas in the music industry in the 80s. So much money and especially so much cocaine. (laughs) And, you know, like, as you mentioned, you were going to Studio 54 with your wife. How did a lot of you, you know, friends from when you were 13... Stay within yourselves as you had this kind of crazy run of hits that uh, you know you maybe never expected.
2: yeah, I mean it uh, it was uh, about the cooling the gang uh, evolution of our music. It just we just continued to grow and continued to try different things, you know with our music and uh, it, it did quite well for us. I mean, uh, you take a song like uh, Joanna. Joanna was the no- most played record of the year. We got an award for that. You know, people will say, uh, r b fans would say, oh, wow, that's too popular. Oh, that's so corny, Joanna. <laughs> but hey, Charles Smith, one of the uh, founding members, was writing a song, and he wanted to call it Dear Ma. And he was in the studio, and we were in there, and uh, J.T. and Jim Bonifon and D. And he was in there trying to sing Dear Marge, the hook to this track. It wasn't working. So one of the guys said, well, why don't you try somebody's a lady's name? We said, okay. And then another guy said, well, what about Joanna? He went back in. He started doing Joanna. That worked. We didn't know that. Most played record of the year. Yeah, and then a lot of different things started happening, you know, you know with our music, you know, like with Fresh or Get
1: Down on it. Cool. Joanna is a little corny. <laughs> I know. It's a great, it's a great song. Don't get me wrong. Its corniness is one of its strengths. I would say. Yeah. But it is, it is a corny song. It's sweet. It's a beautiful record too. But yeah, it did. Yeah, it
2: did, it did quite well. You know. So there it is. Uh, We went through that. Ten years later, JT decides to leave. He wants to go on his own. He wants to go solo. And uh, I can kind of see that to some degree because now Lionel Richie left with on his own, successful. Michael Jackson left with on his own, successful. So you were having those type of things were happening. And uh, I told JT, listen, you can still be in the band. But do you think we'll still be in the band, like Phil Collins did with Genesis and et cetera, et cetera. He did not do that. So he went on. And then we had to rethink our career. So we went into markets that we wouldn't normally go into. Uh, we would just play uh, France, uh, England, Germany. And after that, we started going to Spain, went into Italy, we went into uh, Czechoslovakia, we went into Romania, we went into Russia. We just ex- expanded all through Europe and we expanded all through Asia, Singapore, Bangkok, Thailand, Japan, all through
1: South America. At that point, you must have known like, look, we know what we're doing. We can start a party. Right. And we
2: became uh, very successful with that during that time period. Uh, J.T. Taylor came back in the band in 1995. We did another album. Um, We had uh, Salute to the Ladies and a couple other songs, but it didn't quite happen like it was before. So he (laughs) he got frustrated. He left again in 1999. Sound like Prince, right? (laughs) So he left. And so we went uh, into the 2000s, and we, we continued to grow. Now, five years ago, we got a call. We're playing in London at the uh, uh, Glastonbury Festival. On that festival, you had Coldplay. You, know, you had uh, U2, a lot of rock groups. And we played on that, on that festival. Now, David Leroy, was in London at the time. He happened to see us on the BBC. So he said, hey. He called up Eddie and Alex. He said, I have the band. I want to be our support band. Not our opening act. Our support band. They said, okay. Who? He said, cool in the gang. They said, cool in the gang? He said, what you been smoking over there, man? He said, listen, I just saw these guys Rock the Glastonbury Festival. You guys want me back? This is when he came back for his, uh, the, the, the re-celebration. And he came back to the band. He said, I'm bringing and Gang with him. <laughs> he ended up doing 48 shows with Van Halen. He told me that his fan, the 60% wait, women, I didn't know that. He said that in the early days, we used to play your song like Funky Stuff, Jungle Boogie out in uh, LA. I didn't know that either. He said, We have the song, Jump, and You Got Celebration. And what do you know he said after that? He said, Cool, let's go out and
1: have a party. We'll finish up with Robert Bell in just a minute. After the break, Cool and the Gang have been making music for over half a century, and they're still releasing new music today. What keeps them heading back to the studio? Robert Bell tells me when we return. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's official.
0: MaxFun has become a co-op.
1: We're now a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows
0: supported directly by you. Thanks to supporters and listeners like you, MaxFun will always be a place where employees have a say. Thanks to you, shows can continue to partner with an independent, values-driven network. Thanks to you, we're able to carry on our commitment to our shows and the community we've grown together.
1: Learn more about what becoming a co-op means for
0: us and you at MaximumFun.org slash co-op. That's MaximumFun.org slash C O O P.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Robert Cool Bell. He's a musician, songwriter, and a founding member of the soul group Cool in the Gang. They have a new album called People Just Want to Have Fun. It's out July 14th. You can also catch them on tour. Let's get back into our conversation. Cool and the Gang have been remarkably steady for a band that has been together since 1964. But in the last few years, you've started to lose people. Your brother passed away. Right. He wasn't the only person from the band that passed away.
2: Right. I lost my brother. I lost Dennis Thomas, one of the original members in the band. Um, And then it was, uh, uh, in the past, was Rick West, Spike Mickens, Charles Smith, Clifford Adams. There's only two of us left. It's just George and I now.
1: You could probably retire off your publishing from the one song on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, much less, you know whatever piece of the publishing you got on Summertime or, or whatever, right? And you're in your 70s, so what keeps you out on the road? What You know, you made two records. This isn't, you know, people just want to have fun. This year's record follows up a record from 2021. So what moves you to do it?
2: Well, I mean, we, we love the music. Um, uh, uh, the challenge is always there as to whether or not we can keep going. Our fan base is strong. Our fan base, if they hit a cool, the gang's not going to come to Czechoslovakia again or they're not going to come to Tokyo. You know, we got true fans. I call them gang heads. (laughs) We got true fans that people still want. You know, I guess you get the same question uh, with the Rollins film. Now, they make way more money than what we did, but they have their fights, they have their arguments, and then they hey, let's settle up, let's go back out again. You know, a lot of groups are like that. You know, BB King stayed out there and see past. You know, I guess it's just the lifestyle. Once a musician, an artist, I guess that's that's who we are. That's uh, what we were blessed to be. This is our contribution to the world.
1: Do you think you're just gonna? You think you're gonna work forever? You think you're going to work until you can't, until you can't move your hands anymore?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> right now, I enjoy what I'm doing, but you know, I'm not getting any younger. You know, shoot, old author and writers might pop in on me, uh, shoot, whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I guess it's a blessing being alive right now and doing what I do, but uh, I don't know when my clock's gonna stop. So right now I'm just trying to live my life.
1: Well, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me. It's a real honor and a real pleasure. Well, thanks thanks for having me. Robert Cool Bell of Cool & The Gang, a genuine living legend. Their new album is called People Just Wanna Have Fun. You can also catch them on tour. We'll include a link to their dates on our Bullseye page. Let's go out with one more song from their new album, which is, I mean, much better than it has any business being. This one is called We Are The Party. That is the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although we are actually in the office right now. And uh, I got an electric car and I found an electric car plug a block away. So it's one of those ones where you can't park there unless your car's plugged in. So my car's plugged in right now. I'm loving it. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun, Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. He's probably at home listening to Cool and the Gang albums right now. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to the GO! team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places. Uh, we share our interviews in all those places, and I hope that you will share our interviews with other people. You can also find them at npr.org. Um, please do. If you like this interview with Cool Bell, tell somebody about it. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.